You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. to the book of Revelation. We continue our study in chapter 5, and we're looking tonight at verses 8 through 14. You'll find this on page 1031 of the Pew Bible. Revelation 5. We'll start at verse 8 and continue to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, as you may remember, John the Apostle is exiled on the island of Patmos for his belief in and testimony to God's word and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a revelation received from Christ, and it is about Christ. He is the object of prophecy. He it is whose hair is white and whose eyes are aflame and whose feet are aglow and whose voice roars and whose face shines. Christ is the sum and substance of the gospel. He's a central figure in the entire book of Revelation. He is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, according to chapter 1. And in him all the lines of truth converge. From him all the beams of divine glory radiate. And the Lord Jesus controls all things. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And he has the keys of death and Hades so that even the king of terrors is his slave. And as king and head of the church, he's able to know and thoroughly assess every church perfectly. Standing in her midst, ever-present, he dictated seven letters to his bride. He commends and he rebukes, he threatens and he promises, and he overrules everything for his own glory. 
And in chapter 4, the perspective shifts from the churches which are on earth to the throne which is in heaven. Attention is drawn from the conditions in this world to the blessedness of the other. John says, after this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And at that moment, we go from the conflicts and the sin and the sadness of time to the glory and the bliss of eternity. At the center is God's throne. All else surrounds and stands in relationship to him. And I do think that that was a vivid reminder that God is supreme and he is sovereign. The creatures and the elders all worship. Verse 8 of chapter 4 says, The four living creatures never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Or in other words, Yahweh. So in chapter 5, we go from beholding the God, the creator, to seeing God, the redeemer. In the right hand of him who sits on the throne, there is a scroll written within and on the back. And it contains God's plan for the history of the world. Whatsoever comes to pass is in that scroll. And so profoundly sacred and so impenetrably secret is that scroll that it is secured by seven seals. And no mere creature, neither human nor angelic, is worthy to break open those seals. John would have despaired if the elder had not consoled him with the gospel. The elder says to the apostle, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And at the very heart of the scene appears the crucified Christ standing in his risen glory. John beheld him as a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And I think it's one of the most profound and striking scenes in all of Scripture. Indeed, it will be for us the great beatific vision in the heavenly realm when we can see him face to face. Whatever the world may think and whatever the world may say, we are children of our heavenly Father. And at the point when Christ takes that scroll from God's right hand is where our text begins for this evening. What is described is the greatest chorus of praise that the universe will ever hear. We know at creation, for example, the opening choir sang praises to the great creator. In Job 38, it says, when the Lord answered Job, he said, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. It must have been a glorious song of praise. Then at Luke 2, at the incarnation, the angelic choir sang praises to our Savior and King. Suddenly there was with the angel who appeared to the shepherds a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. But at the consummation, this heavenly choir sings, I believe, the greatest songs that will ever be sung. Every creature, high and low, great and small, will join in the celestial praise. And there are, according to this text, three great waves in which these heavenly songs are sung for his resounding praise. Three waves. The first wave is comprised of the four living creatures and the 24 elders in verse 8. And it's symbolic, I believe, of both the creation and the church singing of Christ's achievement 
Each is holding a consecrated harp as well as golden bowls full of incense. And John explains to us that the incense represents the prayers of the saints in answer to our Sunday school question this morning. The ascending incense at the temple in Jerusalem was an apt symbol of the prayers rising to heaven. And that's why in Psalm 141, David says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. So according to this, our prayers are to God a sweet-smelling fragrance. And this above all else from his children is what brings pleasure to our Father. Our prayers. Pleadings from humble homes and raised pulpits. Prayers from sick rooms and funeral homes. Those saints are despised on earth and deemed of little import. They are precious in God's sight. And the prayers of the saints waft up to heaven as sweet and fragrant savors to the Lord. That's what he tells us. And with the prayers is the praise, the theme of which is the lamb who was slain. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, they say. And here we find the crucified Christ hailed and adored because of his obedient sacrifice on earth. It's as a slain lamb, a slain lamb, that he is absolutely and ultimately and supremely worthy. His blameless carriage in life, his perfect fulfillment of the law in his death is praiseworthy. It's the merit of his death that imbues his mediation with worth. That's why we read Philippians 2. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, for that reason, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. I quote the Prince of Preachers here, Charles Spurgeon, who says, As mediator, our Lord's worthiness did not merely arise from his person as God and perfect man, this fitted him to undertake the office, but his right to claim the privileges written in the Magna Charta which God held in his hand, his right to take possession for his people of that seven-sealed indenture lies in this, that he has fulfilled the condition of the covenant, and hence they sing, Thou art worthy, for thou was slain. In song, the, great the three great implications of his death are summed up by the creatures. His death was redemptive and extensive and enriching. First, it was redemptive. By your blood, you ransomed people for God. So we find out that redemption is not aimless. He purchased a particular people for his father, and the price required for the redemption of the elect was paid in full at the cross. His blood did not secure salvation for every individual who has ever lived. No. He ransomed a people for God. A distinct people. A particular people. The rest of inspired scripture agrees with this and makes it plain. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
He ransomed us as a bride for himself, and he accomplished our salvation. He didn't simply make it possible. He accomplished it. It's finished. There was this cosmic transaction at the cross, and he purchased a peculiar people. So his death was redemptive, as they say. Secondly, his death was extensive. Look at People from every tribe, language, people, and nation. From all over the world, people drawn from every category on earth. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? From different ethnicities and languages and backgrounds and earthly distinctions, this vast company will one day stand before God's throne in heaven. And it's going to be made up of sinners from every kind of human being. We're told that this great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, stand before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. It's extensive. But then third, his death is enriching. It says he made them a kingdom and priests to our God. So by his death, we've been elevated to imperial status. We're made a kingdom. Believers are exalted to the status of royal dignity, though on earth we're slaves. In Christ, God has given us unparalleled privileges as children of the palace. And he also appoints us as priests who all have the right to approach this holy God. I don't think we take that into consideration too much. You know, the Old Testament high priest could only enter the most holy place once a year. But in Christ, we can draw near and enter into the Holy of Holies anytime we wish. We share in the Lord's triumph and we will reign with him on the earth. And this salvation accomplished for the church and the world, and of this the church sings first. Note how their expressions of praise are described by John as a new song in verse 9. It's an Old Testament technical phrase for a song to God because of new mercies from God. For example, God rescued the psalmist from the pit of destruction in Psalm 40, and he said, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to my God. David saw the coming of Messiah in Psalm 98, and he said, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Isaiah anticipated Christ's work in chapter 42, and he said, sing to the Lord a new song. So in response to the greatest mercy of all time, God's redemption in Christ, heaven sings a new song. And it signifies a song that is fresh. Not necessarily recent, but fresh. The word new has more to do with the quality than with the date. One commentator says, a thing which has not only been recently produced, but whose like has never existed before. Even before the fall, the universe had been tainted by sin of the angels. Satan and his followers were condemned with no hope of redemption. Peter says God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. No atoning sacrifice, no mercy extended, no hope of deliverance ever. After the fall, God expelled man from the garden, but he promised salvation. And Christ's death in the fullness of time fulfilled that promise. 
something never before celebrated in the way that it is now. Never before had such an act of deliverance been accomplished. It was unprecedented. Nothing else has a fraction of the significance of the cross. Christ's death paved the way for everlasting life and peace and abiding joy. And his work changed everything. A brand new age dawned when he rose from the dead. And so glorious is the messianic age that by comparison, nothing else has glory. So the first wave from the world and the church praises the lamb who was slain. But then we go to the second wave comprised of the vast company of angels singing the Redeemer's excellence in verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Now you know that angels are holy, immortal creatures, excelling in knowledge and mighty in power, far superior to us. They're noble and they're fearless and they're resplendent spirits whose purpose is to serve and to worship God. And do you know what's amazing? These superior beings learn of the gospel and rejoice in its fruit by watching our service of worship. That's staggering. Paul says to the Ephesians, it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, through the church. And with zealous fervor and eager anticipation, they observe the lives of God's saints. They watch. Your guardian angel watches. Jesus said there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They're watching. Those who attend the Lord are a vast innumerable host that nobody can number, and they work as ministering spirits sent out to serve the heirs of salvation, and they have intense concern about what goes on here. And with bated breath, they eagerly watch the saints, and having learned of the gospel mysteries from the church, they praise him with zeal. Christ is worthy to receive power and wealth, wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. Do you see what they're doing? It's the excited, joy-filled response of things into which angels long to look. The elders sang of the work of Christ in his death. The angels sang of the possessions of Christ in his glory. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. These seven possessions represent the totality of virtue and excellence. The Lamb is glorious. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the power of God with unsearchable riches. It teaches us that Jesus is the wisdom of God to whom belongs strength. And we're told that every tongue will confess him and all glory belongs to him and every blessing flows from him. And all the mind can conceive of beauty and nobility and excellence and supremacy is in Christ. The entire universe, the whole creation is laid at the feet of the lamb who was slain. That's the second wave. But then there's the third wave, which is the cosmos itself erupting in praise of the triumphant glorified Christ. The first wave was made up of the living creatures and the elders. 
The second wave was made up of all the myriads of angels. And this third wave comprises the universe itself. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them sang to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So the glorified church and the angelic choir is joined by the universal chorus of praise, every creature. And you know something? Nothing in our experience, nothing can compare with this unanimous tribute. Every single creature will acknowledge his greatness and give him homage. And there is no creature in the entire cosmos that will not confess the worth of Christ. This will be the ultimate fulfillment of Paul's prediction of Christ's exaltation in Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what we're seeing here is that every creature will sing the song of all spheres and the language of all worlds, and nothing underscores the height of exaltation like sitting at the right hand of God. Do you know what that implies, sitting at the right hand of God? He is on equal footing with the Father. And as the universe will be full of his glory, so we're taught here that it will be filled with unceasing praise. And to testify all of this, as we learned this morning, their desire and assurance, the church and the world conclude like this. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders, the church, fall down and worshiped. What it says, really, is that the living creatures kept saying, Amen. Again and again and again, constantly following each ascription of praise. Amen. And the elders kept falling prostrate and worshiping in the greatest privilege and their deepest joy because human souls crave variety and God supplies this rich diversity to satisfy our souls, even in heaven. Some have said, I believe injudiciously, if all we do is sing praise all day, it's going to be boring. Think of the most exciting sporting event or the musical performance that you've ever seen. All you want to do is cheer, clap, joyfully shout and eager support, right? That's nothing compared to what is and will be going on in heaven. This heavenly scene is not in any sense boring. There is not a dull moment here. In heaven, there's something fresh every moment, and it's gripping and it's thrilling as the whole assembled universe is praising the Lamb, and I believe it'll be deafening. Every creature fully engaged, even devils forced to confess him, bowing in tribute. And hence, the three great waves of resounding praise fill heaven from one end to the other. And in applying this, I think, first of all, it shows from the songs of heaven how we need redemption. 
We're sinners in the sight of God. If you didn't know, you know that. And these creatures would not praise so loud and praise so long if salvation had been unnecessary. The grand theme of heaven itself is salvation of the guilty by the sacrifice of Christ. The lamb slain delivers us from sin and misery, death and damnation. He said, and I quote, that I came to save not the righteous, but sinners. Self-righteous people see no need of redemption. How wrong are they? So many in our day, our loved ones, sadly, see no need for Christ. And they have no idea how desperate they are. But these songs of heaven teach us that the everlasting theme, the everlasting theme will be redemption. We were exposed to God's wrath. We were imperiled by the curse. We were subject to the second death. And yet the Lamb of God was slain. And by his blood, we've been redeemed. And God bids everyone to find refuge in this Christ or else launch into eternity without hope. That's the first observation. The second of three is this, that the songs of heaven show Christ is considered as worth redeeming. Consider us as worth redeeming. Isn't that amazing? Christ considered us as worth redeeming. He gave himself. He didn't leave us or forsake us or abandon us to the penalty that we deserved. He was slain and by his blood he ransomed people for God. Why? Why would he do that? For sinners, filthy rebels. And all we know is that for reasons known only to him, he was willing to suffer and save us. Or, to quote Paul, because of the great love with which he loved us, God made us alive together with Christ. So I think we should find comfort this evening, regardless of our present situation, that Jesus found you surprisingly worthy to redeem. But then third and finally, the songs of heaven show God's redemptive activity should evoke devotion. The only appropriate response to the lamb who was slain is worship. His sacrifice should call forth from the deep recesses of our souls heartfelt praise. No other duty is enjoined more often in the Bible than praising the Lord. The Bible is full of music. Heaven is bursting with praise. The church should be filled with joy. Singing is the language of rejoicing, and the saints in heaven are filled with inexpressible joy. Shouldn't we sing? If angels who need no salvation sing, shouldn't we sing? If gospel mysteries excite their praise, should they not excite ours? Does this not awaken within you and I a desire to ascribe worth to this great lamb who was slain? Does it not underscore the folly of those who refuse to sing in worship? In the third petition, we ask that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And so tonight it's a privilege for us to join our voices with that chorus in heaven in praise of Christ. Let us not miss the opportunity while we have breath in our lungs. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.